0: Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The ask a cycling coach podcast presented by trainer road. I'm coach Jonathan Lee, and we have a different episode for you all this week. And if you're joining us now on YouTube for a premiere, thank you so much. Give it a thumbs up, share it with your friends. We are going to talk a lot about training with limited schedules. We're going to talk about. Getting pro fitness, uh, but with uh, you know being a t- time poor athlete like much of us are that are listening here, and we and MTB technique, a ton of stuff, and we have a special guest with us to talk about that. Uh, Alex Wild from Orange Seal Racing, Orange Seal and Specialized. I'm not sure uh, how to best present
1: you. <laughs> Orange Seal with Specialized, good. Hey everybody, thanks for having me, guys.
0: Uh, longtime podcast listener. Um, fan of the podcast and friend of the podcast, and also a professional mountain biker has been selected for team USA to represent team USA at multiple events. Uh, pretty amazing stuff at, 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 at world championship level events, which is pretty amazing. So, and of course we have our CEO, Nate Pearson. What's up, Nate.
2: What's up, dude. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, so we're going to get straight into things first, uh, but, but just a couple of quick things, the successful athletes podcast, if you're not listening to it yet, you totally need to listen to it. We have episodes coming up every single week. Just search for successful athletes Podcast. It's a podcast where we very literally interview successful athletes to find out how to make you faster on the bike if you're listening to it. So, uh, if not, you're missing out on some extra speed and some really cool and inspirational stories that you can tune into and check out there. Uh, secondly, also with outside workouts, this is going to be the last week that we're going to do our get faster outside giveaway. So if you are, uh, if you're doing out, trainer road outside workouts, which everybody should totally be doing them. They're awesome. It's a really good way to compliment your training that you're doing and still execute on your plan and get faster at all times, uh, use the hashtag, get faster outside and share pictures or videos on Instagram of you doing that. And then we pick one person a week and we give them a swag package to be able to do that. So, uh, with all of those things out of the way. Alex, let's get into your background. So first things first, uh, how did you get into cycling and, and mountain biking in general?
1: Um, so I got into cycling when I was in high school, uh, before Nika, it was the NorCal league. So I live in NorCal. We had that at my high school and I was never any good at the traditional ball sports. i probably tried out for everyone and, and failed. Uh, soccer, basketball, all that. Not sure if it's coordination, but never really worked out. My mom was getting frustrated with me, hanging out after school and wanted me to do something. So my brother was on the bike team and in true little brother fashion, whatever he does, I want to do. And he wanted nothing to do with me. So I does mountain biking and borrowed a bike and got to the first race. Um, I kind of, from there, just did it to kind of check the box of, you know, my mom wanted me to, to be active and do a sport and did the Nika thing through high school. And I always laugh because when I got out of Cat 1, 17, 18, I thought the next natural progression was Cat 1, 19 to 29. And then I show up to that first race and everybody's in the U23 category. I'm like, what's going on here? Like, I just raced with them and now they're racing with the pros. So kind of uh, worked my own way through it and, and just probably when I was like 19 or 20 is kind of when I picked up cycling as I know it now, I started to see like, I was naturally good at it. I could, I really started to enjoy the bike then. It was more of a, a freedom piece and kind of like an offset to like work and school and everything. It was my release. So that's kind of when I started to pick it up as, as I know it now. How old so are you that's, yeah. Sorry, Nate, go ahead. So What was that? how How old are you? I'm 27 now.
0: And and so you and let's fast forward to now. So you're a professional mountain biker. Like I said, you race for Orange Seal. You race for Specialized. You also uh, work for Specialized as, a, as an analyst there. Correct.
2: Yep.
1: So I, uh, uh, double dip in the cookie jar, so to
2: speak. <laughs> wait, wait. We, we we can't glance over this. He's a supply chain analyst, which means he knows when Shimano's going 12 speed road. Cause that's, they gotta know. So, so I'm just really, it's my
1: fault that we have no bikes right now. <laughs>
2: <Yes. Yeah.
1: laughs> this whole
0: podcast is a sham. We just got you on here to just talk about when Durace is going to go 12 speed for Nate. So
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, no, but, no, but, I don't know anything about that. Nate.
2: Yeah, exactly. What's Shimano? I don't know. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> but um, I mean, just, just here and all know, he knows everything about all new stuff way ahead of time. Right. So that's <laughs> just crazy for me to think because of everything, but specialized touches in the bike industry, which is almost anything. Uh, the man that's in the know, which is, I think just kind of cool.
0: it doesn't help uh, anyone
2: get faster, but it's cool.
0: Slide into his DMS to talk to, to talk about other things. Uh, don't just pepper him with questions about when stuff's going to come out. Uh, where are you on Instagram? First of all, so Uh, then people can see that maybe look as they listen along.
1: Yeah. On Instagram, I'm at Alex wild MTB. So W I L D MTB. And, uh, yeah. Shoot me a message. Any questions you have, um, if you haven't told by my background, I'm super analytical. So everything has a reason or a metric behind it.
2: So I think one thing to mention, Alex, I've been talking on Instagram is that Alex is like me, but fast. So like (laughs) we talk, he cares about all the little details. I actually just switched. I don't have it here. I switched waxing chains to, uh, what is it? Ice friction. Ice friction. yeah, using that because of Alex, we talked about the details and we think we might get a couple more watts in that brand versus other brand stuff. Um, Alex is sponsored by, are you sponsored by them?
1: Yep, sponsored by Ice Friction. Yeah. Uh,
2: nice I'm thing not, about though. the
1: privateer program is you get to to cherry pick the best brands. So, like we were talking about with Ice Friction, they're a mechanical engineering company, and the Ice Friction is kind of like the, the passion project, so to speak. So, it's cool with those guys because every wax chain. Gives you like X watts, right? But the Ice Friction promise is that they test every chain for imperfections and guarantee their watt savings
2: or more. Mm. Yeah, and a couple that's of watts a big difference, big, especially over big long rides. Anyways, because w-
0: when I wax chains, I don't think they're very efficient. So
1: <laughs> I gave up. Where I started, I did the you know the traditional wax in the Instapod and did it that route, and I'm definitely not as good as Ice Friction at it.
2: Yeah, this yeah. is uh. A side note, but this is my current strategy for waxing chains. Cause the stripping is the hard part is I get the, I was doing speed before, but now I think I'm gonna do ice friction, uh, depending on my luck with it, you run it, that's your race chain. And then I I'll also train on it. And then I will, and when it, when it runs out of wax, I'll re dip it in molten speed wax Then I'll have another nice training chain. And then for a big race, I would get a new chain and have that be like separate just for races, but then I can have a pretty efficient chain for training that that works. Well, Alex, you probably just get new chains every week, but.
1: Um, well, actually my hack recently has been, I'll put on a wax chain for the KOM attempt or whatever I'm going after. And then I'll keep it on there for the 500 Ks. They say the chain is good and they don't have to wax it every day. So one less thing to stop me from getting on the bike, but you bring up a good point, ice friction actually does what's called re-icing. So, you can send them back the used chain. They'll strip it for you and re-ice it for a cheaper price. So, that's cool too. Might be worth just getting a, a re-ice chain.
0: Yeah, that's a cool setup. So uh, th- I, hopefully by now we've already established that Alex is as much of a nerd as us, uh, as, as, as as Nate and I on this one. So we're going to get into details. And one of the things I want to get into uh, first to kind of set some context for people is uh, what your typical schedule is like for work when like how many hours you work in a week and then how many hours do you train? And then we'll get into like how you make it all balance it all out. Yeah,
1: that's definitely a little bit of a juggling act. I work a traditional work week, so a 40 hour week. Um, I hesitate to say a nine to five because since I'm an analyst, my manager is also very supportive of my racing. So I kind of juggle that around in time. Like, uh, I just did a big Cape Epic week where I rode 30 hours and I was able to actually not take any time off for that. I was just waking up super early and working after the four hours. So it was a 30 hour week on a bike and a 40 hour week in the office.
2: What do you mean Cape Epic week? Are you going to do Cape <laughs> Epic?
1: I want to, at some point it's on the bucket list, not this year, but, um, I, I did the old, the Honda KOM attempt, which is a big segment near us. And then we kind of used it as like the prologue and then just went out and smashed some big hours
2: for a week. Which, so you did the amount lost... of time that, sorry, you did the amount of time that would be at Cape Epic for a pro
1: roughly. We, we went a little over cause we like bikes a little too much.
0: <laughs> and when he says, we, he's probably talking about Daniel Munoz who is the guy sure. that just absolutely waxes me at every national championship race. So, um, please stop training with him. One thing really quick, we can't, okay, we, can't gloss, we can't gloss over this. You said the old La Honda attempt, uh, attempt was, was your prologue and you actually tied Phil for the KOM tied Phil Guyman's time on that to the second. It was painful to be that Oh close. No,
1: no, the the first attempt, I was a uh, second slower. I went for the second time, actually <laughs> after the Cape Epic week and tied him. <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> I guess I'll have to go back with only a 20 hour taper. Yeah, so you know I that's want, like a yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want Strava to like relook at that because that's like within the margin of error, I feel like, on a on a you know a 13 minute segment. I know oh, I was gosh. on a Rubay.
1: I mean he was on what a 12 pound, no drops, no front brake, no bar tape.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: if, Maybe Specialized is coming out with a new bike maybe pretty soon here says our forum and <laughs> SL7 that could have make you get that. Anyways, so just to give can we go geek? I know we have got a whole list here, but let's just let's geek on it. some things on this let's one because you were, and this is one of Phil's best efforts, right? Uh I he said that.
1: that. He, he said that SRM
2: and it said 470, so I mean I mean
1: anybody do 470 for 13 minutes is
2: yeah, right?
1: Is, I I don't know his full power profile, but mm.
2: It was insane, uh so for you, what things did you change or did you adjust or what what were you what did you do to optimize your time Because I'm guessing did you take like you didn't just like have your normal setup and go what did you do? um I
1: had some constraints in that, like I have the Roubaix, that's my road bike. um The Roval guys gave me a new pair of their alpinist wheels, which are twelve hundred and fifty grams. Um, I ran those with cotton tires. 26 mil um we actually took the front derailleur off for the first attempt because i knew i was going to little ring the whole thing and when you're competing against philly i feel like you kind of have to do a nod to the nerd and uh, so i did that skin suit of course um weighed out whether i needed the hundred and some grams for my iphone and music or not and i went <laughs> without music um I went with a actual uh, CE helmet. So we have different specs for helmets and the CE ones are lighter to match their testing. So that saved 40 grams.
2: Is that European?
1: Yes, so it's the European standard is lighter than the US standard most of the time. Um, (laughs) And then a wax chain from ice friction, of course, a little bit of amp on the legs and it was a good time.
2: What uh, butyl or latex tubes in those cotton turbos? latex. Good. Of course. I just needed everyone else to see, hear that. <laughs> <laughs> what so would you like have changed?
0: Shaving. Yeah, go, please, Nate, go ahead.
2: What would you, now that you know that you're with one second, what things do you think, or you tied, what things do you think you could have done to get that one second?
1: Um, I mean, it's always easy to say you could find a second, right? It's such a small amount of time to Jonathan's point. It's probably within GPS error. So I think I probably would have just chucked my Garmin at the end and called it a day. <laughs> just throw it ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> uh, but I mean, um, ideally I would have liked to run tubeless, but the Alpinists are clincher only. Um, so, uh, I probably would have done a 26 tubeless tubeless tire. Um, if I had all the time in the world, I probably would have sourced a tarmac frame. I mean, that that difference alone would have been the time I needed. Uh, maybe you took my handlebar tape off, but didn't want to get about, too nerdy about
2: it. What about tire pressure? Because I feel like three psi could totally make that. What tire pressure did you run? Do you I have access to people that were all that? 90.
1: So I checked with our Roval guys and as well as we have a team in Germany that runs like scenarios. And so I was like, I'm just going uphill. This is the climb I sent in the segment. The pavement is decent, but not like a track smooth. And they said probably 90 to a hundred PSI since you're not going downhill.
2: And how much do you weigh?
1: I weigh 68 to 70 kilos. The frustrating how- part is that second attempt was all weight. So since I did that big week, I probably had some extra water and blood volume and I was actually 70.5 and the first attempt I was 68.5 and I did exactly 14 Watts more the second time and it wasn't worth it. It was only a second. Uh, So
0: the, um, what, what internal width are those wheels that you were running?
1: I believe they're 21 mil internal width.
0: So they're relatively like narrow. Uh, yes. traditional like, mm-hmm. uh, shaped road wheels like that, hence the higher pressure, cause I know yes. like on your wider wheels that you have normally on your UBA, you run really low pressures at times, right?
1: Yeah. When I'm just riding tubeless and just on a regular ride, one, I'm descending as well and two, comfort is far more important to me, just like an overall nice ride. So I run my 28 tubeless
2: tires at 60 PSI. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'll do like 55 in the front 60 in the rear at 70 kilos. So up old Honda, how much, uh, how many Watts did you do? 456 for, for 13, something, 13 minutes, 26 seconds. So what's your, uh, watt kg <laughs> at for FTP? That would be roughly six and a
1: half for that.
2: But what do you think for normal? Like what would be your FTP? My FTP is 410 right now. So just around six. Legit. So this brings me to the <laughs> next question, Alex, why go pro mountain biker? Why not try to be a pro roadie? Cause it seems like you have the the raw Watts and the, the body. Yeah.
1: I mean, I've, I've asked myself that question multiple times. It's multifaceted one. I have a family like being on the road, 200 days a year sounds rather rough and not sure I could justify it from uh, from a, where I'm at in life standpoint, like maybe, you know, the junior is coming out of college and you know, that's, that's what they want to do. And they have the time to do it kind of thing. Um, Also with a full-time job, it's much easier to get away with lower hours, racing an hour and a half mountain bike race than multiple day stage races where you need to get four or five hours. There's a guy in our office, super fast, Cameron Piper, who actually does that. and It it blows my mind. He can do stage races at the top end and gets the hours in and, and he works 40 hour weeks as well. So I just don't think I have the time
2: or the passion for road biking. Yeah. That's a good point is that for mountain bikers. You can train solo and then fly to your races. They're usually not sometimes stage races, but usually there's not many big ones. You don't have to be part of a team. You have to have this huge calendar. You can pick and choose. So you can be pro have sponsors, enjoy that side of it, but still have like, I'd assume, uh, you at specialized, uh, my, like pros usually don't make too much money. And even, uh, even pro, unless you're in the world tour, like you don't make much money. Even that you gotta be pretty good. You probably make more money at specialized and like you said, balance your life, provide for your family, all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. I always joke with Jen that I have to hold down two jobs to, to keep up with the Silicon Valley.
2: Yeah, <laughs> for
0: sure. Yeah. Um, so what, in in terms of that, I want to take a step even further back. Why go pro instead of just be a cat one? Because it's so like, I'll share my experience. Um, I, I, if I went pro, I would be a very bad pro. Um, I would be like very back in the pack. Right. But still, I, you know, I probably could justify that and I probably wouldn't be last place, but I don't do that because I think, well, I I work a full-time job and I want to race other people with a full-time job. You work that full-time job and you uh, clearly want to race professionals that don't have those sort of full-time jobs. Why go pro? Why not just stay cat one?
1: Um, I feel like for me, it's a bit of respect the gift. I mean, I'd be amiss to not acknowledge that I have a sort of genetic predisposition to be where I am and my ceiling is at a certain level. I also have a big passion for my own human performance. So where can I be? How far can I push it? And personally, I don't like to see the job as as an excuse, you know, like not saying by any means that, that that's what you're doing. It's just more of like why not, if I have this ability, if I can hit these numbers, if I can train like this. Um, my my teammate and and rider himself, Payson has a saying that's, if not now, when? So it's like, this is kind of when you're in your physical prime. I have more time to develop my career further if I so wish in, in terms of analytics, but as far as a physical prime, it's like,
2: it's now or never. Hmm. You Yeah, to John's point, you could clean up and just win. Tons of races and national championships and all that sort of stuff.
0: Your problem you could to be too, to like many jerseys. To yeah. Yeah, too many jerseys with stars and stripes, right?
2: <laughs> I, I can't think of anyone mountain, like a non-pro mountain biker that Alex wouldn't beat.
0: Yeah, no, there's nobody, at least in my Unless opinion. Unless it was enduro no, or something. Like, I don't mean <laughs> any disrespect or anything to anybody well, Alex there, is just awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Alex is at a different level. So that's an interesting, I, I I like that of like respecting the gift and seeing your potential and going for it. Cause I think that is an important thing, and your potential truly lies in the professional level. Whereas, you know, for for many folks, their potential or their ability to fulfill that potential, it might not get to that, which is just fine. It's everybody you know operates within their own space, so to speak, you know, and and, and gets that done. Um, I think, so, uh,
2: John, yeah, a no. lot of sorry, we keep interrupting. It's hard in Zoom. It is a lot of people are happy that Alex has that decision. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a whole <laughs> amount of people between 30 and 25 that are like, like John, John
1: 35.
2: Yeah. who's like, thank you, Alex. That's, that's exactly what we need.
1: Well, I, I didn't mention Daniel has me on retainer not to race cat one. That's
0: how he, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. That, so that's the arrangement you have. You train with him, you make him fast. He beats What's me that? all the time, but he, he, yeah, you can he can't go pro or you can't drop down. So, um, one of the things I want to cover really quick is, so actually two of them. How do you balance recovery? Well, actually actually, no, let's get to that one in a little bit. The first one I want to cover is how do you manage the expectations? Because like, so you mentioned that you don't like to use the job as an excuse, right? Mm -hmm. It's got to be tough when you go to a race and you know that everybody else isn't working 40 hours a week. So how do you manage like expectations for yourself? But then also how do you manage confidence? Because confidence is really big. And if you kind of come into a race and you say, well, I've got this big asterisk by my name where I'm not on a level playing field with my competitors because I have to work. Have you given much thought to that? You know, how do you manage those two things, expectations and confidence?
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely would be lying if I say it hasn't been something I think about, but I also try to use my energy and things I can control. So, like controlling what I can control means that I get myself to that start line ready in the best way I can to perform my own race to do my best effort, whereas, if I'm worried what the other guys are doing or training or that I'm not getting in the twenty hour weeks back to back, then I've kind of already let them win in a way. they're in my head they're they're taking over my headspace and my preparation, so I don't think that I'm at a disadvantage, honestly. Um, there's definitely advantages and disadvantages, but having a full-time job, I don't have to convince and specialize at the end of every year that I'm still a good analyst and they should sign me for another year. It's like I deliver on a daily basis. So there's, there's that kind of security and definitely has its ups and downs. But I mean, it's just about carving out the time you need to achieve what you want to achieve.
2: Do you think Alex? There's any just to riff off what you just said because you do have a full-time job job and you're supportive that actually reduces the anxiety in some of these bigger races and you can perform better because, like you said, you're still gonna you can still be a pro the next year if you don't do the best.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely the personality of rider, right? It's like a contract that's very incentive based. You know, some people don't like that and they want a bigger base salary and they're gonna train just as hard, and then some people are like. You know, don't pay me anything unless I win a race like that. That drives my fire. So for me, everything I earn from cycling is like cake, right? Like I can live day to day on my full-time job. So there is, there is less pressure to a certain extent, but I mean, I'm a competitor, so it's not like there is no pressure. It's like, yeah, I want to win every race I show up to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. If, and. Uh, in. I want to transition into the training that you actually do, but before I do that, I want to cover, what do you think is like your best? Like, so last year, and I'm going to say your best finish, uh, or best finishes that you would share. But last year I watched you put in a finish that I thought was absolutely remarkable at national championships, mountain bike, national championships. And, uh, which was at 10,000 feet. So extremely high elevation in Colorado and racing cross country at that sort of elevation is, is a really complex game. Uh, where did you start in that race? And then you ended up fourth, which is absolutely incredible against a stacked field. Like one of the most stacked fields you've had at nationals, you know, in in years. So where did you start in that race? And then how did you make it all the way up to fourth?
1: Um, so I had enough UCI points that I actually started second row. So luckily I didn't have to make up too much time, but. The way that course was set up was where there's one main climb at the beginning, a few descents, and then more of a traversy section on the way back. So actually what me and my coach did is we were like, what is the maximum power I can put out for that eight minutes, six times in a row in this race? And then for the start lap, there is some negotiation, I guess, with that power based on like, I need to get in front of that guy. I need to be top 10 wheels. Like, I don't want to lose time for the rest of the lap kind of thing. So the first lap we kind of gave myself a little buffer on what I could do. And then after that, I don't know if you saw, but every time I would cross the start finish line, I'd press the lap button and I was just doing intervals. Like, so I was, I think coming into the second lap, I was eighth place and 10 seconds off the lead group. And then each time we came around, I'd get closer. And by lap three, I was tagged onto the back. And then with Two to go, Howie and Keegan had attacked and Finstey and I rode the last lap together and sprinted out for third and fourth. So my approach to that one was just super analytical, but also knowing at altitude, like it's so easy to blow yourself. So mm-hmm. I just I was doing intervals with with friends.
2: A
0: super that impressive is, finish.
2: That is so like key. I think more people could do that, especially in cross country racing. If it doesn't get like you didn't have that many people ahead of you. Dude to pace it over the whole race, rather than just like, what's the maximum amount I can do on the first time. Uh, It's like train a road intervals. If you're doing eight minute intervals, what can you do, would you say six times, six laps? Yep. Mm -hmm. And those last three laps, that's when you gain time on everybody else. But that's, and and that's, uh, so many people don't do that. They just wanna like stay with the people that are very fit and everyone's going out too hard. And then it like, uh, they all slow down more and you would actually be faster. Just like, it's a time trial, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's it. That's, that's exactly it. How many hours do you roughly train a week, Alex? On average, probably 12 to 14. And then how much of what's the composition of your training like? Because we've spoken about this before, but I feel like it'd be interesting for people to to know.
1: Yeah. uh, My week is normally set up with like two blocks within the week with Friday normally being the separator. Um, I'll normally have a spin or a day off on Friday unless we're doing a big build. I definitely have trained Tuesday through Sunday, but majority of the time it'll be Tuesday or Wednesday will be an interval day with the other one being endurance. And then Thursday we'll do either endurance or endurance with accelerations, which means every 10 minutes we're doing a 45 second seated acceleration. Um, And then Friday as the breakup and then Saturday will normally be another interval day either the same or similar to what we did earlier in the week. And then Sunday is normally like a big endurance day on the mountain bike.
0: So that, that looks a lot like, uh, the majority of our plans in the sense that it's, and in comparison, it's much more intensity than you see a lot of people that do the, the big 20 hour weeks. Right. Um, how yeah. did you, how did you get to that point where you started, to, where you added in or where you got to the point where you are now with more intensity than usual for a pro?
1: I think for me, it. And I hesitate to call it junk miles because definitely the people at my level aren't doing junk miles, so to speak, but everything in my plan has a reason. So if you look on my Strava, for example, like you will see my rest in between intervals is like 240. And that's because in the workout plan, the rest, the, the goal is to be able to pump out lactated endurance pace. So everything has a purpose and everything is hit perfectly. And definitely just my personality if the range says 220 to 246 you better believe it's going to be 246 on the dot uh it's just making the most of the time i have like i don't have time unfortunately to just like tack on an hour of of easy cruising or something like that like one of my favorite workouts is two and a half hours where we warm up for 15 minutes at endurance plus then we do over unders and then we do tempo for an hour and then we do 30 30s at the end so it's like It's a massive workout, but it's combining everything I need to get done that maybe should happen over four hours, over two and a half.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Seems to work.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Seems to be working just fine for Alex. Um, This is like, I find it interesting because in many cases you see there's like a separation between people say like average Joes. Yeah, sure. They can do more intensity, but pros don't. And I think Mm -hmm. that it's important to probably break that and show the fact that like each person you know is is need something and but the one key thing that everybody could do better with is if you have more structure and tighter adherence to that structure you're going to get more specific outcomes right like specific training brings about specific outcomes and you take it like you said if it's 220 to 246 you nail that 246 not 245 um so you mentioned to me as well on a recent ride together that you found that the that VO2 it like has it brings about like uh your adaptation rate seems to really go up. Like you really respond well to that sort of training. Can you walk me through how you discovered that? Like what you kind of saw in your performance that that told you that?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's actually the introduction of those accelerations. So two years ago, um what we did was we started adding in a lot of seated work. What we were identifying was that there was a discrepancy in power on race day versus training. And we kind of knocked that down to that I stood a lot during my efforts and I would do them on the road bike whereas in mountain biking on steep climbs or loose climbs or technical terrain there's a lot of seated high torque efforts so we introduced these accelerations and what we saw is we we thought going into it that my threshold would take a hit but we would be able to work at a higher percent of that threshold what actually happened is we never touched threshold and then I set a new threshold PR. Hmm. So my training doesn't have your traditional two by twenties or four by tens in it. What we do is we do that over under style accelerations and we do tempo in between. So we're kind of hitting both ends of it and it actually brings my threshold up higher than it's ever been. Hmm.
0: And yeah, thinking of like Baird plus six and a lot of workouts like that, that are very much like that or Baird. Like that's a recent one that I've done where it's VO two work structured rest. And then after that, you know, you tack on the tempo to try to, to pack it full. What about nutrition? That's one thing I want to talk about too, because I'm sure you're nerdy on that. I mean, if you're nerdy with your chains, you're nerdy with what you put in your body. I'm sure. Uh, what do you usually like, uh, do you have a specific sort of diet? I hesitate to use that word and I'm using air quotes for all those that are listening on the podcast, but, um, what's your, what's your meal composition typically like throughout a week? Um, and then how do you feel your work?
1: So, If we haven't already established it, I'm a nerd. So it should come no surprise to you that I weigh everything I eat (laughs) and I track everything on my fitness pal. Um, So I'm a high carb athlete, like for sure. Um, Anything over an hour spin (laughs) is fueled.
0: Nate's, by the way, for those listening to the podcast, Nate's just, Nate's grinning ear to ear because he's like me, but
2: faster. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Alex. uh, I interrupted you.
1: Yeah. So anything over a recovery spin is is fueled. Um, I tend to go on endurance rides every half hour or so. I'll take in twenty to twenty five grams of carbs, so eighty to one hundred calories every half hour. Um, I think you guys mentioned on podcast a couple weeks ago TSS and calories are the same, and that's because the power you produce determines the calories you burn. The, sorry, the power you produce determines the calories you burn. So I can look at a workout and actually gauge how many calories I'm gonna blow through. So for endurance days, it's normally just like I'll eat my my breakfast before, I'll go for my ride fuel every 30 minutes, but something like a high intensity, like that two and a half hour day, I told you I'm gonna go through probably 2,800 calories in two and a half hours. So that takes a little more planning and I'll be shooting for hundred grams of calories an hour. So I'll probably mix like a Morton 320 drink mix with an SIS gel every hour to try to get a, a, Hundred grams,
2: and what Alex is uh, meaning is uh, kilojoules and calories match. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah. It makes it easy. That's why let's uh, say like we cheat with that. All of us trainer road users, right? Because we can see the estimated cal- caloric burn for all the workouts beforehand. It's a, it's a really important thing.
2: Alex, what about uh, nutrition off the bike? What's your diet like? Um, so I have
1: like baseline macros. For nerds out there, two hundred grams of carbs, one hundred twenty grams of protein, and seventy five grams of fat. And that's roughly 2,000 calories as a base, and then everything I burn on the bike I divide by four and add it to carbs. So, for example, if I did a 1,600 kJ ride, I would do 600 grams of carbs that day. Um, obviously, trying to get that mostly from fruits and vegetables. But I laughed when Amber said uh, she would be caught downing a whole bag of Haribo because if on that 2,800 calorie day, the only chance I have of getting those carbs in is to to down a bag of Haribo. So. <laughs> As it expands my, my sugar intake definitely increases, but, um, on recovery days and spin days, it'll be, you know, eggs and sausage and some toast in the morning, and then probably like a rice and veggie meal in the afternoon. And then like salmon and rice, some sort of lean protein and rice and some
2: veggies in the afternoon. What happens with, uh, what, what percentage carbs are, do you think you're doing then on those big 2800 calorie days? For
1: 2,800 calories, you're looking at 900 grams of carbs. So 3,600 calories of a 4,500 calorie day.
2: I'll do the math That's do a lot. math. That's like 70%, 68, 70%. 80%. Yeah. So th- th- what, what you know, we've talked about before, and this is what Matt Spirrell, Matt Fitzgerald says too, is that top endurance athletes when they're doing those big days, he says they do 80% carbs, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty interesting is that this is anecdotal, but you're matching exactly with that. And of course, on a lower, lower day, that would be less because you're not adding all those Mm -hmm. extra carbs.
1: Definitely. Yeah, my, my protein and fat stays the same. And then it's just the carbs at scale. And I mean, you know, on big days, if you have 80 grams of carbs, you just got to know what, what that means. So you have five more grams of fat, which five grams of fat is 20 grams of carb in terms of calories. So you just kind of play around with that. Yeah, that's uh, cool.
0: let's get into some technique stuff because mountain biking, obviously it's unique in the sense that you've got the fitness side, then there's the technical side, right? Um, and that's like, where do you find if you were to like distribute your strengths and weaknesses in terms of that, those, that context of the fitness and the technique, where I guess, uh, where are you strongest?
1: Oh, fitness for sure. I mean, I think it hit me. 2016 marathon nationals i had the fitness to be with the lead group and i just didn't have the technical skills it was a really twisty course in georgia probably like two three hundred turns per lap and we did two laps so it's it kind of woke me up then that it's like you can be as fit as you want but you're using all your energy just to keep up then you're at a disadvantage so kind of ever since then i've put a focus into descending and yeah
0: yeah. So what have you done there to improve your descending? Because that's a super interesting point. Um, that I've, so, and along these lines, I, I struggle calling it descending because it's like technical skill helps everywhere, right? Yeah. It's like, it's not just in this binary mode where you have like, like nationals was almost a binary course. like The one that we were talking about before it was like big climb, uh, kind of like, you know, big long descent and then that traverse section where it was really yeah. like compartmentalized. But even then, even in the climbs and everything else, that technical skill does like up your efficiency level. Right. So what, what have you done to improve on the technical side since noticing that?
1: Um, I think I just made it a goal for me. It was difficult because you know, TSS and all that, like Watts, like they all have a metric tied to them. So my personality leans towards that. I have a, a gauge of how I'm improving. Whereas descending, it's like you can use Strava, but at the same time, if you wrote it when it was tacky wet dirt versus when it was dry and dusty and blown out in July, it's like, I'm never gonna PR in summer kind of thing, right? So it was just mentally making it a point to be better at descending. And uh, I think after that marathon race is when I started my partnership with Yoke. So I put a dropper post on every one of my bikes. I'm a firm believer in set up your bike for what your weaknesses are versus what your strengths are. So I can have a super light hardtail, but I don't really need much help in the climbing department. I need a full suspension bike that's capable and has a dropper post. So bike set up for sure, but also spending more time on the trail bike. Like this past weekend, my brother and I went to Northstar and that was my first time routing lifts. So just actively pursuing it. Like I would a threshold bump. Hmm.
2: I didn't see that on Strava. When Hey, when I get back, let's all go to Northstar.
1: Oh, that'd be a blast.
2: All yeah. three of
0: us yeah that'd be that'd be awesome and Alex rode all, all the things he rode Carpiel, dogbone all the Whoa. all the gnarly ones so which is pretty impressive
2: They're, i'll watch you <laughs>
0: yeah if anybody wants to see those sort of trails that he was riding you can go on if you look up ewS northstar you'll find a bunch of videos that, that show what they were going down most of them don't seem like trails they just seem like geological mistakes so <laughs> um <laughs> but uh, along these so along these lines what held you back with descending i want to dig deeper into that because like you said it's hard since there's no metric but what did you feel like was holding you back that you've gotten better at? Because now you're a competitive descender, right? So like, like it's, um, like you said, you're still, your, your strength is fitness, but it's not like your, your technical abilities are disqualifying you from competing at the front. So what, what things did you have to overcome? What's been hard for you?
1: I would just say fear. I mean, I always joke. I got into cycling when I already knew what fear was when I wasn't made a rubber anymore you know, like you you see those development kids and it's, it's mind blowing. I mean, it's awesome. Like Groms are the coolest people to watch ride a bike, but like I knew what pain felt like I knew risk versus reward, you know? So it's mentally like just sending it was, was difficult at times. Like I need a logical progression. And that was what was really cool about Tahoe. You know, like you have the Truckee bike park. It's like, you have those three drops right next to each other. It's like, if you have that, it's like, you can go off the small one. Okay. Got it. Next one. Got it. Okay. And now you're doing like six to 10 foot drops and you're not thinking about it. So just riding with people who are better than me. I mean, my brother has been a huge help as well. He races enduro. So he spends a lot of time, you know, racing big bikes and focusing on going fast downhill. So it's like, although I can whip him into shape up a climb, put him on a descent and it's just like white knuckling the whole way down. So just having a good camaraderie with him and just actively pursuing it, you know, like mm-hmm. this identifying it as a weakness, but not letting that get in the way, so to speak.
0: Have you made any equipment decisions along that process? Like you mentioned the fact of having like, you know, the, the dropper post, but like tire choice, do you find that you run slightly different things than maybe your competition does?
1: Definitely. Um, I run. The bike yoke dropper, like I said, on all my bikes, as well as two, three fast tracks, which are made by specialized are like mid range cross country tire. And I made that choice solely based on descending. Like I have a wider contact patch. I can run a little bit lower pressures and it's a very predictable tire. So that it may not be as fast as, you know, a renegade or whatever, but for me, it's faster overall. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's an important point. And Nate, you've kind of like you, you've, you've changed through plenty of tires. Right. And at first you were running tires that leaned on the side of giving you the confidence that you need. And now you're getting to the point where your tires are getting more towards speed and efficiency, but it it all kind of follows that same gradient. Like you said, starting with the small drop and then working your way up, like, you know, just reducing that fear. So then you can like actually progress. That's a big thing.
2: Right. There's one thing I want to say about tires is I was. I fell victim to this is I had like, and Alex, I don't know if you see this too, is I was not exceeding the limit of my tire at all at first. So I'd, I'd get these even like beefier tires and I was anywhere close. I could have had something, but I wasn't like leaning the bike enough or really pushing it or running it close to the limits of that tire. So I was able to go to a faster tire and then start to feel the limits. And then like, I almost like learned how to ride my mountain bike a little bit better when I found that how a tire will predict, will, will change if I do this or that. And then I can kind of tweak inside of that. Do you, do you have that same kind of experience, Alex? Yeah. I mean, I have that when I go between my Enduro that has two, six butcher tires, which is like a very big,
1: you know, trail style tire and my fast track. It, what it did for me is it makes you really be able to look at a tire and see how it's going to react. Like on the butcher, the side knobs are spaced quite far from the center knobs. So there's that little bit of slip in transition when you're, you're hitting the edge of the tire versus the fast track, which is very evenly knobbed and lower knobs. So it's definitely a a different feel going between them. But I think what the enduro does or a trail bike in general does is allows you that forgiveness, you know, like you can make a mistake on that bike and it's just got all the travel in the world. So it's like, you got this, no problem. You know, like you go off a drop and you land a little nose heavy. It's like you've got that extra travel kind of thing. So I think it's been a useful tool to try something on the big bike and then transfer it over to the XC bike.
0: Yeah. That's a, that's a huge, uh, who was I riding with just over there? Just recently I was riding with somebody who was mentioning that very thing. And they said that the biggest breakthrough for them was actually getting on a trail bike. And once they got on a trail bike, it was like, wow, now, cause they were coming from road Now I can actually, you know, ride better. And, and actually I know exactly who it was. It was Katarina Nash. Um, so we're talking like, you know, world champ level athlete. And she was mentioning the same thing once she started to get onto big bikes and started to ride those more. So we're talking enduro level bikes her descending skills went through the roof and just riding, trying to hold onto her wheel this weekend was really hard for me. Um, How many stitches did
2: you get doing that? Saying, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. 21. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're very much there in my leg right now. So she's, she's just so fast. And for an athlete that also, it's very important to point out the fact that she got her start as a very young uh, person as an athlete, she had been doing it her whole life. And also she's, uh, in cyclocross, uh, from a relatively young age, of course, Nordic skiing was where her origins were, but. So she really like has had like a lot of technical skill time, but she still noticed a huge level up in performance once she got onto bigger bikes, because once again, it let her know what was possible and it really just kind of opened up her eyes and it removed that fear component. So then she could really progress and improve her skills and I think that there's probably, uh, Alex, I want to ask you this question. Do you feel sketchy when you get back on your XC bike? Cause that's like the concern people say, well, don't ride the big bike because then you're going to be overriding your cross country bike.
1: No, I think it goes back to what you guys mentioned a few weeks ago with you coming from moto and, and biking, feeling slow. The nice thing about the trail bike is your, your trail speed tends to be overall faster. So when you go to the XC bike, you feel like you have more time to react and you know how the bike's gonna handle. I mean, to Nate's point, the tires may act a little differently, but it's it's not like the body position changes. You know, like if you can hit that drop perfectly on the, the trail bike, you're really not using all the suspension kind of thing. You know, when, when you've done it right, is the suspension is there to forgive you when you make the mistake kind of thing. So I think going to the XC bike after the trail bike, there is a little bit of adjustment, but it's not like a sketchy adjustment. It's just a yeah. different mm-hmm. bike.
2: I think on that, as I've heard that a lot too, John, and I've always wondered myself, cause I've had the same experience where riding an enduro bike helps that like, if we put Richie rude on a cross country bike, he wouldn't be like, Oh, this is completely different. I don't know what's going on. Right. Where maybe if we put him on a horse, we'd be like, Hey, he's like, this is completely different, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's close enough. It's the yeah. same technique. Right. Uh, yeah. so I, I, th- I think, I think you're right, Alex and Katarina's right. And my experience too, is those big bikes really help develop your skills.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And, and along those lines, I want to get into more like the technical things that you do with your bike, because once again, you're a nerd. So, um, just like us, uh, uh, what, so you ride the specialized Epic, right? That's your, that's your go-to bike. Correct. So, uh, that bike is unique in the sense that it has the brain. So it's like a, it's basically a, a damper that tries to differentiate between pedaling forces and trail forces. So then it keeps you locked out when it needs to be locked out and then unlocked when it needs to be unlocked. Um, yep. so that has unique settings on it too, but first things first, uh, what pressure do you run in your fork? And you already mentioned that you're roughly somewhere between 68 to 70 kilograms, right? So yep. what pressure do you run in your fork? And then what pressure do you run in your shock?
1: I run 65 PSI in my fork with no tokens. And then I run 140 PSI in the rear.
0: And tokens are are volume spacers that you put inside of a suspension fork or shock to make that smaller. And it makes it more progressive. Um, just if anybody's, if, if roadies are like, what the heck are we talking about, uh, you don't put coins into your bike uh, to make it
1: ride or something. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, so, and then on rebound, what do you do on rebound? Do you run your fork in, in shock? Do you run it? Uh, are you a fast rebound or slow rebound
1: sort of rider? Um, I'd say I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, I used to run quite a bit faster rebound. Um, but I've been playing around with it recently because I was getting some hand pain on longer distance and not using my full travel. So could be bro science, but, <laughs> but, uh, you I, I felt like if I had slowed it down, it would give the opportunity to use the full travel, but also it wouldn't be kicking back on my hands as much. And, and I batched it out two turns and
2: so far so good.
0: Awesome. Um, so that that's on the full travel thing. Can I just go on that really quick? Is that it's okay? Quite, okay. So,
2: Everyone lean back. Let's, let's hear it. <laughs> so just pet um, peeve.
0: yeah, yeah. So it's like, um, so when you mentioned using full travel, you were probably doing things that probably should have used full travel, right? Like Bro. drops or jumps or, or big hits in some regard. That's like the hard thing is never like somebody like brings a bike into a bike shop or asks another person. They're like, well, are you using full travel? And they're like, no. And they're like, well, it's totally wrong. And that's not the case. Um, and that's a bad way to say that your suspension is either set up correctly or not. Right. Instead, like you said, it's much more different. Like you were looking at hand pain, you were looking at the cues when you're riding the bike to try to find out if it's riding well. So, If you feel like your bike just isn't planted and you're running reasonable tire pressures and everything is bouncing around all over the place and it's hard to control. And when you get into really bumpy sections, it just gets progressively scarier like that. Chances are you need to slow things down, right? Um, or run a little less pressure or something like that. So it's, I guess that the, the point I'm getting at is if somebody tells you that your suspension is improperly set up because you're not using full travel, but you're not doing the sort of riding that should require that, then just don't worry about it. Like, it's totally fine. Like, if I lived in an area that didn't have big drops, jumps, or anything like that, it was just smooth, flowy trails. I wouldn't want to use full travel. Uh, That would be really bad, actually, if you're using full travel in that scenario, because you're probably riding a waterbed. So, um, what pressure do you run in, and actually, what size bike do you ride, and how tall are you, too? Because I'm sure we'll get that question somewhere down
1: below. This will be a funny one. I ride a medium, and I'm six foot tall.
0: So the which you sh- I say should in air quotes ride a large, right? So why do you ride a medium?
1: I have tiny little legs. My saddle <laughs> is seven thirty-five for a six-foot rider. So I have a so, pretty long torso and short legs. So I feel like the medium is more manageable on descents. And of course it's lighter. So
0: nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good one. I prefer a smaller chassis feel for cross country racing too. So uh so yeah, which you know, a size isn't necessarily gospel in that. What pressure do you run? You already mentioned that you run the fast tracks and they're 2.3 wide. Um, on which internal width wheels, I guess, what wheels do you use? And then what pressure?
1: I'm using the new Roval control cells, which have a 29 mil internal width. Um, and then right now I am running the S works fast tracks at 16 PSI in the front and 18 in the rear with no inserts.
0: And you just run orange seal inside for puncture resistance, even though the S works sidewalls are nice and slim. Really thin. correct.
1: Yeah. But orange seal seals, big hole. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nice. Uh, uh, kit let's talk about that. Um, you, I think I've, I've seen in most races, you tend to use something like a, a two in one sort of skin suit sort of a thing.
1: Um, yeah, this year I'm with DNA cycling for their kit and I have a, this year it's a, a one piece skin suit cause it had pockets and I never actually unzipped it all the way to the bottom because if you do, you're kind of defeating the purpose of a skin suit. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so they, they give me two piece stuff and skin suits, but I tend to race exclusively in skin
2: suits. What about hydration? I think I've seen, uh, you use a Usway pack. pack for training, but what about for racing?
1: Uh, I use the sweet for longer races. Like I'd use it every day at Breck Epic. Uh, the outlander two liter is the one I go for. It's mm-hmm. nice because it's it showing
0: it right now. On yeah, the, yeah. On the, if you can see on YouTube, one of the many reasons you should join us on YouTube.
1: <laughs> yeah. So that one sits above your pockets so I can still get to, you know, food and, and stuff in my back pockets, which is nice. Um, I use that on any training ride over two hours. Um, I think I told you this, Nate, but when I'm going full gas, I'm sweating 1.8 liters per hour. So as much fluid as
2: I can get back in there. <laughs> That's a lot. That's, that's really high. Yeah. Alex, you'll like this. I was just, uh, weighing, uh, two tall bottles versus (laughs) the use way outlander pro this is without water to try to figure out for, for races. What's the difference in weight between an empty pack and the two bottles. Of course, the empty pack, you could have more, you you can have up to two liters in that. And I think the two large bottles is like 1.5, I believe, but you can always just put 1.5 in the backpack and it makes it a little bit easier to drink. So the difference in weight is about half a pound. What's Mm -hmm. that 238 grams or something. is the difference between those two. So that's it'd be even closer if you ran a insulated bladder at 1.6 liters and weighed two insulated bottles.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. You're right. You're right.
0: This is another, do either of you realize or notice this when I have a hydration pack, I I'm better at drinking. I drink more.
2: Yeah,
1: it's definitely easier. And I mean, worst case scenario with a bottle, right? You drop it. Worst case scenario with the straw, it's flapping around and you have to figure it out in a second. So I really and like I, the hydration pack, but I normally run two big
2: bottles and a hydration pack on anything over two hours. I feel like two is, uh, it takes less energy to drink. Like, I don't know about you guys, but my, my bottles are way down there. Maybe not for Alex. Cause his seat's so short, but <laughs> like, <laughs> I have to like, sometimes I drop my post, but you reach down and you're like doing more stuff. And if you're going yeah. tempo or sweet spot and you have to do that, uh, I find that like get like I can get out of breath a little bit easier, or my power, or my watts drop while I do it.
1: Yeah, Usbe also makes a magnetic connector, so yeah, it's right there. Oh, it comes yeah. on that one now. Perfect. No, no, yeah, I, I, I it. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah.
1: So that's yeah. a whole lot easier because I mean, you can even just throw that in the general direction
2: of the magnet and it'll pick it up. So yeah, that's yeah. nice. If you miss yeah. it, it gets it while you're descending.
0: <laughs> hey, I've never thought of Maybe that while uh, you're
1: descending. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I never thought about that with you having such a high saddle height, that would be really hard to reach down and grab the bottles. Um, that would be in tune in, check out Nate's Instagram, tr.nate, and you can see how high his saddle is maybe in some of the pictures there. I'm sure there's probably yeah. a bike it's picture somewhere.
2: It's on so, my, I got the Epic. So it's on my latest Strava, Nate Pearson on Strava. And you can see it's, it's yeah. comical. I think I'm going to do a TikTok about my saddle height. <laughs> it is high and it's hard. You got to have your kids. Like, you hey, the drop saddle. It. Yeah. I know. It's just to get my
1: product just to get down to your bottles. <laughs> yeah, bottom floor. And I go down <laughs> and I get it. Bottom floor. <laughs>
0: um, something to so. uh, I guess one other thing too. Helmets. Do you use the Evade or do you use the Prevail? I think is the name of the other one, right? The vented one or the arrow one is the tr- is the question. I
1: tend to lean towards the Prevail just for heat management, but for like short track and stuff, that's going to be fast paced. I lean towards the evade. Yeah. If it's a
0: long race, like Leadville, what would you mm-hmm. use?
1: I'd use the evade.
0: Just cause you're spending more time out there.
1: Yeah. And we've done specific modeling on Leadville and it's worth it.
0: Oh man. The advantage. Can you imagine how many data points he probably has? It's a, it's awesome. Um, what about f- for repairs and tools and that sort of stuff? What do you carry? I know specialize has some really cool stuff for that, but, uh, what do you carry on you and a typical training ride? And then in a typical race
1: and a typical training ride, I'll just have, we have a swap box, which we have three bottle mounts on our XC frames. So on the third one, you can put just this little box. That's kind of like a saddle bag that sits underneath the cage. And I throw a spare ETap battery in there, a spare CR 2032 battery in there. Cause there's nothing worse than your power meter dying on you. Mid-workout <laughs> and a tube, uh, tire lever plugs. And a CO2.
0: Yeah, that's the, that's my favorite part about running, um, the axis stuff is the fact that I can just put the battery in there and then I have I never have battery anxiety cause I can just yeah. swap it out. It's so nice. Um, you know, and then I, I guess you could also just run cables and you don't have any battery anxiety either. So, mm. <laughs> um, but anyways, um, what about, uh, on, do you carry anything on your person or is that all on your
1: bike? that's all on my bike. Um, for me, it's a lot easier than remembering to stick all that in my back pockets. Mm -hmm. Um, and then for race day for like a marathon style race, it'll be very similar minus the batteries because I should have charged those. And then (laughs) for XC racing, we're spoiled little princesses and we have two feed zones per lap that have wheels and every little bit you can break on a bike. So I don't carry anything with me, not even my gels.
0: Do you carry tire plugs with you at all? In those scenarios? No, just risk it for the biscuit.
1: Yeah. If I I flat it, I've already lost.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do you want to get into some questions? Just a a few questions that uh, some listeners have submitted that I think, oh yeah, Nate, you have something.
2: I have one more comment. Alex needs to do Cape Epic. You got to convince specialized to get you on a team this year.
1: I tried to convince Jonathan on
2: our ride and you should have
1: seen his face he did. He did try to
0: convince me, And I was like, that would be so I would be dead trying to ride with Alex.
2: Hang on to his pocket. The walk KG between you two is, is there's a significant difference. (laughs) And I think Cape Epic is a, it's a geeks race, walk KG nutrition, fueling recovery. I think you could do really well. Uh, so I know they, I think special, like specialized takes it to a whole nother level, right? Like they, it is a big race for them. I'd love to see you at least in your first year as the, uh, like the backup team. So the specialized does is they have another team ride as close as they can to the front person, just as spare parts. So if someone flats, that team can catch quickly and give them a wheel, or if they have a broken wheel, so they're not out of the race, or if there's something really bad, that team will then would take over. But yeah, save Nino's race last year, having that pit team. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Uh, so that is. I think you would be with your power and and it would be awesome. Uh, and I, it's not that technical. So I don't think it would slow you down, um, as much as some other, like a cross-country race or a world cup race or something. Yeah.
0: To be clear, I want you to race it, Alex. I just, I just don't want to do it. And I really don't want to do it with you because <laughs> that would be so brutal.
2: <laughs> that'd oh, that be really
0: hard. hard. Actually, you can, uh, can you have Daniel do it? And can you just work him into the ground to like put him in like a year long hole and then I'll target nationals and maybe I'll have a chance that year. So
1: that was all last week. <laughs> I know it was I mean, a race this weekend. You might have
0: him. maybe right. Yeah. If I'm lucky. So, um, Okay. Let's get into some questions. Uh, first one's from Martin. He says, I've been having some problems with performance on race day. When training, I have some really good numbers, but in race day, I'm nervous after a few minutes, my legs feel heavy, start feeling dizzy. And he says, although my Watts aren't that much different to training, I race cross country and I'm a junior. Do you know why this happens and what I can do to mitigate it? So this is like, I, I thought that you'd be a great person to ask on this, Alex, cause you've raced at world champ, like at world championships, right? So that's gotta be like the pinnacle of it and ton of nerves. Have you dealt with nerves?
1: Oh, for all? sure. Yeah. Uh, first hearing this for me, it sounds like a bit of race to anxiety mixed with like possibly specific training. I mean, I've definitely experienced both. Um, we talked about the seated power for me, that was a big thing for producing the same power in training as in racing but also I do a lot of my interval training on my mountain bike, even if it's on the road, just the logic is, if I can put out the power on this bike, I can put out the power on this bike, right? Like you, you cut out any, any question on whether this power transfers from one bike to the other. But also I feel like we tend to train a lot with music and other outside influences and and race day. It's, it's someone else's pain train, right? Like, like if you go out to a workout and you're five minutes, you know, and you're four minutes in and you're dying, you're like, well, I just got another minute. But if you're four minutes into like the start and you're looking up and this guy's setting the pace, you're like, when is this going to stop? So mm-hmm. it's like, it's more outside controlled. And and what I always do in those kind of situations is like, if I'm taxed, it's kind of like remembering those, what I was feeling during those intervals. Like, and telling myself I can, I can hurt more than this. I've hurt more than this, like kind of thing. It's, it's more just because it, you're not in control. Mm.
0: Yeah. That's a, a good quick point. clip.
2: That was yes. good. That's yeah. so true. So true. I love that about not knowing when it's going to end. Cause that, yeah. that breaks people. Totally. You ever break people? Do you know, Alex, in a race, do you look at someone on a climb and be like, if I just push it a little bit harder, I'm going to break this person.
1: Yeah, I mean, you get certain cues, but it's never a foregone conclusion, right? Like, like breathing rate tends to be one, whether you drop them the lap before kind of thing. Like there's definitely mind games involved. And when someone's chasing you kind of up the pace just to make it feel like they're never going to catch you kind of thing. So there's definitely that tactics involved, but I mean it's a hard one to tell. Like there's the Chris room approach, which I take, which is like, it looks like you're always hurting. Like I always breathe quite loud and heavily just because I'm trying to focus on my breathing, but I'll do that both when I'm fresh and when I'm tired. So it's kind of like, and then there's the Nairo Quintana, right? Where it's like, he's just about to pop and he's got a, sh-
2: a straight poker face. So are there any other uh, mind games you play? Cause that's super interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, they- it, it's, there's, there's a couple different tactics in terms of that. It's like, You know, it tends to be the general advice of like, go to the front when you're tired and and hide when you're feeling good kind of thing. So it's like sometimes doing the opposite, you know, because you never know where everybody else is at. So it's like, if you're super tired in a short track and it's 10 laps to go, it's like, maybe that's the time to take a flyer. Maybe they'll just let you go kind of thing. So it's like kind of reverse psychology in a way. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And if and in those cases, if you get away with it, it's great. If you don't, you really pay for it. But
1: then <laughs> you go I now mean, you conclusion it. to start with. You know? Yeah. Like if you're not feeling good, you're gonna get popped at some point anyway. So you might as well blow a match and just see what happens.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I like that way of like instead of getting twenty-fourth out of fifty, like you're trying to get podium or you're like last place.
1: Yeah. yeah. The Ricky Bobby
0: move.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, first year last I did that at short track nationals last year, actually, because we yeah. got to a point where they were just throttling and it was super hard. And I was in the box and I was like, I don't know how much longer I can handle this and the pace eased up. And I just tempoed my way just past the front or like from the tail of the group up to the front of the group. And then I was like, well, I'm just going to give it a little bit of gas here. And it did start to stretch out the fat, the pack, but I was either going to finish really last or I was going to be close to last. I figured, so I figured it might as well, you know, it was worth a shot. It did shell some yeah. folks. I think I ended up sixth. Right. Um, so not bad. Um, Way close. Better than last. Uh, yeah, exactly. Better than last. Right. And then also there's one thing to be said for this too. Like, um, there's always like an, an I mean, it's hard to say this because so in, in all racing, there's an element of risk for sure even in a very calculated race, like a time trial, that's like a pan flat 40 k TT, There's still risk because in the moment you have a game plan that you're probably sticking to, but you're probably going to make some sort of changes in that race, like small changes, maybe, but there's always risk. And when you talk about mountain bike racing, where short track in particular, where it's very tactical, it's like a crit, but on bikes like that, there's a ton of risk involved. So you do have to kind of place bets at certain points and. I always get really frustrated with myself when I race a race and I, my performance is mediocre, but I didn't try something. Um, you know, because you can tell when you're going to be mediocre, like, and, and you can tell when you're on a great day and you can tell when it's just a meh day. And on those meh days, like, you know, it's, it's, maybe it's worth it to just try something at the very least. You may rest easier that night knowing that you did try something, at least for me, that's how it works. You could say it's foolish. And maybe if I had held on other people may have blown up, but it's uh yeah, I guess I'm not paid to race. So I can probably make those sort of gambles.
1: Um, yeah, but hindsight is 2020, right? I mean, I think committing to a full effort is the only thing you control, can control. I mean, racing or training, right? Like I think Amber has a similar quote to this, like show up with curiosity. I kind of, I say commit to pressing the lap button, you know, like on intervals, like committing to commit to starting that first interval and just see what happens. Like leave a little room to surprise yourself. Like for me, that old Honda second attempt was just like Kate wanted to to go for the QOM and I paced her up. And then I was just like, I'll be right back and just give it a shot. You know, sometimes you've got more than you think you've got.
2: Yeah. On her Instagram, I saw, you fly up you you just insane how fast you're going like it looked <laughs> like you were going on like over 20 miles per hour at the end sprinting up uh you're very fast
1: yes i told um, Jonathan i gotta work on my my pacing strategy
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's right yeah uh let's if you can give it at the sort of at the end of an effort like that if you can wick it up a lot then chances are you probably could have given it more earlier on save some time huh uh, Mark's question says, Hey, they're all great podcast. Five stars. Never miss an episode. Thanks for listening Mark. We appreciate it. He says, my question is regarding warm ups for races, cross country Olympics, crits and road. And let's focus on XCO in this case. Uh, he says, I'm super busy with my family and rarely have the lug- luxury of arriving the prescribed one hour plus before a race to properly warm up. Typically, I get there thirty minutes before the start. Barely make registration, and if I have time after pinning up and setting up my bike, I'll get a little bit of riding around, but in the parking lot, and then just go straight to line up. I've heard as long as your warm up falls within twenty four hours, it counts as a warm up. And actually, Chad's debunked that before. Um, so there are plenty of episodes if you search "ask a cycling coach warm up." He's talked about that in plenty of cases where um, the how long the effects of a warm up last and how long they go and, and we're talking you know if it's within an hour it will have some sort of effect and usually if it's after that i believe what chad has referenced is where it starts to the, the the effect starts to go away the beneficial effects of a warm-up which is increased blood circulation you know capillary action that's basically opening up with that and then of course muscle fiber recruitment neuromuscular firing patterns all that stuff coming online so to speak and of course metabolism working so starting to burn some carbs so uh he says uh, I always have a window to hop on the trainer or to hop on trainer road first thing in the morning on race day. And he says, I'm wondering if I get proper 30 to 45 minute warm-ups with this count as a proper race venue warmup. Uh, he says, of course, nothing beats the real one, but maybe that could help. So we've kind of debunked that one for, for you in this case, Mark, in that if you're going to warm up, you want to do it within an hour. And really ideally uh, any time within an hour is, is okay. But, um, giving yourself somewhere around like 15 minutes or so to cool down from your warmup is usually ideal, but Alex, I wanted to get the, you on here for this, because what is, what's your warmup protocol? I would assume that you have one.
1: Yeah. Uh, my usual warm up is start five minutes, ramping up to endurance and then an eight minute progression to race pace or threshold somewhere around there. And then two minutes easier, five minutes endurance with three quick eight-second spin-ups. Nothing like full effort, but just touch on that system. And then pretty much from there, spin to the line or spin as much as you can until you get to the line.
0: Yeah, how long would you ideally leave until the end of your warm-up and getting to the starting line?
1: With UCI racing, we normally have call-ups ten to fifteen minutes before. Um, so I normally start my warm-up like forty-five minutes before race start. And then if I need to extend out that spin, that's fine. That just keeps keeps the body going. I've even been known to do what I call the enduro spin, which I'll line up actually next to the gate, clipped in and hold on and spin backwards. <laughs> so during that time, I can still kind of keep moving. But for us, it's a little more straightforward because our spots are selected for us. Whereas in the amateur ranks, there's more jostling for that front row. Like the earlier you get there, the more likely you are to start at the front.
0: Does that change at all for marathon races? Like do you change your warm-up protocol for something that's longer?
1: Yeah, I mean, something that's as long as Leadville and with the the start as it is, I actually don't warm up. I just show up to the line and and that cruise to the bottom of Kevins will be the warm-up. It also depends, right? Because like the Epic rides, a lot of them start pretty much up a climb and then dive into single track. So you need some sort of warm-up to be ready for that high intensity. It tends to be just how the race is going to start. So if it's going to be a high intense effort, you don't want to just go nothing into that. But if it's going to be like, you know, a road race or, or a longer day that starts pretty mellow in a group, then you can kind of build your way into it.
0: One of the things I want to cover on the start is what, or do you have any strategies you that you like, what do you look for in a starting position? And do you do anything unique on the start to help you? Like, what have you learned throughout your whole process?
1: Um, it depends. For UCI racing, it also depends like which row I'm on. The farther back I am, I actually look to go to the outside of the corner because everybody's going to dive inside, and there's normally like a channel around that first corner. So, if for example, if the if the first one is like a sweeping right-hand turn, I'd, I'd try to line up on the left. Um, if you're in the front, obviously you try to line up so you got the shortest path to that. Probably a few spots from the right. So um, just kind of looking at what the start looks like, but also like the terrain you're on, right? Like if you're on loose gravel, like brushing your rear tire on that, so you're not starting on over Mm -hmm. a rock. Like you can actually like either sweep your back tire back and forth or just get your hand down there and make a little patch. So that that first acceleration, you're not putting too much torque into the rear wheel and just blowing through a pedal stroke. Um, I also set up I start left foot clipped in, right foot on the ground, and I set up my pedal so that when it's coming up, it's flat.
2: So it's not like vertical and hitting my cleat the wrong Yes. Way. I've never heard that. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> and it's got detailed tips. Yeah. yeah. So you just change the position of the pedal and then you know when you rotate it, it'll be in the right spot, you're saying.
2: Correct.
1: And you can even do that by like setting it up where you wanted it in the right spot and then back pedaling to where you want to be. And another <laughs> advantage of the bike yoke droppers is I start with my dropper down so I can sit firmly on the saddle.
0: Yeah. That's a, that's an overlooked thing. I see a lot of people with droppers and they start with their saddle all the way up in the air and you don't have to drop it all the way. You can just drop it like a portion of the way, right? Yeah. How much Alex drop would... do you have on your, oh, sorry. Nate, yeah. Go
2: ahead. That was going to be my question. How much yeah. drop do you use? And then uh, what pedals do you use?
1: Uh, the dropper is a bike yoke divine so that has 80 mils of drop. And the fun thing about those is it's a dropper that you can actually cut, which is part of the reason I like it. So I was able to cut the bottom of mine, since I don't use it all and it saves 30 grams. So the actual, the whole system is 365 grams.
0: Well, that's, that's including remote. Yeah. Oh, that's light. Yeah. That's yeah. lighter than the carbon post that I have, the KS Lev. See yeah. yeah.
1: And then for pedals, I run Shimano XTR and that's just because they're bomb proof and you can clip into them hundred percent of the time. I used to run Expedos, and I just, I'd get caught. They had seemed to have sharp edges and they would catch my shoe.
0: Yeah, we were just talking about that. How I like them because I feel locked in and that's what I currently run. And they are super light. They're awesome in that regard. They're really light, but they, I feel like they wear out fast and then the cleats also wear out fast, but the pedal body itself also starts to like wear out to the point where it's like harder to, to clip in and out. And it gets kind of tricky in that regard. And the Mm -hmm. Shimano's are just dead easy to clip into and you can bash them on anything and they usually keep going. So yeah which it, uh, for a race like Cape epic, especially right. Nate is like super important. Durability is like, has to be a concern. So
2: I assume so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, okay. Uh, let's go into the last question here and uh, say, so if you're joining us live on YouTube, once again, give us a thumbs up if you haven't already. Drop us comments down below, drop drop some uh questions for Alex down below that maybe he can jump into afterward. We won't be able to cover them live since we aren't streaming this live, but um he can probably jump in a little later later on. You can also go to trainerroad.com slash forum and within there you can just search for this episode, uh, which is gonna be episode 269. You can search Alex's name too, another easy way to find it. And then Alex will be in the forum too. And and if you have any questions, we can chat about that and we can nerd out on all the XC stuff. Just don't, don't start asking him like specialized supply chain questions. Um, he can, (laughs) he, he just won't answer. So, um, okay. Paul's question. He says, once again, five stars for the podcast. I started with trainer road in November and have been addicted to the app and your podcast ever since. I moved to Sweden from the UK almost a year ago, and traditionally I have raced cross country mountain biking and road races, both crits and standard in the UK, but I took last year off from racing. So I'm currently clawing my way back to fitness with general build. Uh, and this is an older question, by the way, but I farmed this one because I thought like it could be specifically applicable to you, Alex. So Paul, I know that you're probably well into your race season. Uh, hopefully this is how you went, but I bet a lot of other people benefit from this. He says the race season in Sweden is mostly cross country marathon races in the first half of the year with cross country Olympic coming in the latter half of the year. So cross country marathon, uh, can you define that maybe for people, Alex, uh, marathon versus yeah.
1: Olympic? Yeah. So cross country Olympic tends to be multiple laps of a small circuit shirting shooting for an hour and a half finish time. Whereas a marathon race is normally two and a half hours plus, and it's Tends to be either two bigger loops or one big loop or point to point race.
0: Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, so, uh, first half is marathon for him of the season. Second half is cross country. Olympic He says in between these bigger races are numerous smaller road races that I plan on doing. So I assume that's kind of like, you know, local series, whether it's on the weekend or midweek, that sort of thing. How do I blend these smaller road races into my training while keeping focus on cross country marathon? And then how can I transition to cross country Olympic for the latter half of the season? He says, I've suffered from being a Jack of all trades in the past and a master of none. So I wanted to avoid this. So you do this, uh, cross country, especially mountain bikers. Cause you have Epic ride series going cool. on. And then you also have the world cups and pro XCTs and UCI XC races, but then also marathon you have, like, it's all over the map. How do you transfer from between the two?
1: Yeah. I mean. I think the way they have it set up is is the best, right? Cause you kind of have marathon at the beginning and then you're transitioning into XCO and then you're sprinkling in these road races. I mean, as far as like a trainer road plan, right? Like that would be like a base build and then going into a specialty in a way, but he would have to prioritize, right? Those, those road races would be like B or C level races and kind of like you could swap a workout for those and stuff. Um, when we're doing XC races that may not be as important and we're shooting more for a marathon style goal, sometimes we'll do the XC race and then tack on like an hour and a half or an hour or two after it. So like pretty much extending the cool down kind of thing. So you would warm up race. And then instead of like a 20 minute cool down, you'd just go for a two hour ride kind of thing to get the total volume you're looking for. Um, but that tends to be the biggest difference as in terms of systems for me uniquely as we touched on with the threshold stuff, I don't tend to need to do too much of that. It's more of just like doing four hour rides on the weekend. If I can kind of thing, Nate touched on it when he said he was going to do DK is like, he doesn't necessarily need to do a eight to 10 hour, 12 hour, whatever day, but he'd want to get a few longer rides in to understand that. And it's, and it's more from a fueling perspective. The issue that I ran into and was a lot of the epic rides was I get to hour two or three and be flat. Like I wasn't taking in enough carbohydrate. So it's more just a matter of trying to extend out that far. So, you know, how your body's going to react.
2: Mm. Um, Alex on those. So when you, how many carbs were you eating before and after that? You fix that problem. I would stick to the, like a gel every half
1: hour no matter what the intensity was before. So I would say it was like, went from 40 grams an hour to hundred grams an hour.
2: And what did you notice? And how, how did your performance change?
1: I just feel like I can ride at that intensity forever, like tempo now, as long as, and it was awesome. I can't believe I'm spacing on his name, but the Precision Nutrition um, Andy Blow, Andy Blow. Andy Blow, Precision he was saying nutrition. the trifecta for performance, right? Is carbs, fluid, and sodium. So I've actually started paying more attention to sodium recently, but it's, it's true. Like if you can fuel the work, you can have enough fluid and you can have enough sodium on board. You could theoretically go forever if your gut could handle that much intake. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a matter of finding what works for you. But as you guys have touched on many times before, it's, it's a super trainable system. Like I wasn't able just to go up to hundred and, and no problem. We're good to go. You start to scale that up, but also I'm a firm believer in training how you race. So my pre-workout meal pancakes and Nutella is the same every day. The only time I don't have pancakes is day off or rest day on the bike. It's the same, you know, it's just scaling the amount of carbs. And then I tend to have a lot of the same foods, like a lot of rice, a lot of veggies, a lot of lean meats, a lot of fruit has kind of like my core. So I think the temptation on race day is always to do something new and exciting. And this is going to make me so much better, but if you nail your training, you'll nail, nail your race.
0: Yeah. I was, I'm just laughing thinking of uh, <laughs> a conversation we were having just before we hit record on the podcast. So um, I'm going to ride
2: a new bike at a race. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's exciting. It is exciting. It that's is for sure. <laughs> it is exciting.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, Alex, what about going the other way? Uh, I'm just thinking if somebody may be in the situation where they're like, they're doing Olympic stuff and they need to go to the longer stuff. Is it just as simple for you? Like you would just tack on more volume, Or would you change fundamentally change the way you train a bit more?
1: Yeah. And I think you have to be okay with giving up a few percentage points in one or the other, like you can't specialize in everything kind of thing. But I think a lot of the energy systems are the same. So a marathon style race is still going to have those high punches on the climbs and at the start and stuff like that. It's not just going to be a tempo all day, but you're going to have to be able to do those punches and then tempo. Kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. it's just overall workload increases. So just making sure that you can handle that. And I think that's the the real importance of that two and a half hour ride I told you about is like 2,800 to 3,000 calories in two and a half hours is massive. So we would probably burn the same in like a three, four hour marathon ride because I'm not pedaling the whole time. I have descents in between and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a way to make sure your body can handle that sort of stress.
0: Yeah. Uh, if, in if, in this case too, uh, Paul, just speaking directly to you, I, I really would favor training for unless cross country marathon is like the goal. I would train favor training for cross country Olympics sort of stuff. Um, I find it easier to stretch myself out to marathon because of the nutrition side of things, right? If you are. Really trained to be able to deal with repeatable efforts, hard, intense work, that sort of thing, and then you have enough nutrition to be able to, you know, keep your body going. You can get away with quite a lot, I feel like, with in a marathon race, um, but still be very, you know, lethal when it counts, so to speak, uh, for those That's races cool. in the decisive moments.
1: And it's the type of energy system, like the VO two max stuff and sprint stuff. Like the more explosive the effort, the quicker it goes away. So with those XC events, like you'll need to have that like sharpen the knife, so to speak, kind of for those really high intense efforts. Whereas marathon, it's like, if you haven't touched on those sprint efforts in a while, you can, like you said, get away with it with some good nutrition.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks Alex. We appreciate this, man. You've been an awesome podcast guest, uh, all all the details. I bet lots of folks have taken notes. If you haven't listen back and take more notes, uh, Alex is extremely fast. And the cool part, Alex is that and, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to say average, because like you said, you do notice that you have a gift, um, and you're extremely diligent with it, but the diligence thing, all of us can do. And so many of us listening to this probably have a similar situation that we're time poor in one regard or another relative to a professional athlete. You, this is just proof that even if you are time poor and that sort of thing, you can really get a ton out of yourself. Um, so I, I'm just super impressed and always inspired by, by you, Alex, and and what you do, uh, amidst all the the craziness of holding down a full-time job, I'd be lying. If I said almost every single workout, I didn't think I bet Alex did his workout today when I pressed that lap button, you know? So, um, so yeah, way to go. And thanks for doing that. Where can people find
1: more about you? Yeah. Uh, find me on Instagram at Alex wild MTV. Follow me on Strava. Uh, I think I'm one of the few pro athletes who literally post everything on there. You can geek through my power data, my heart rate data, everything's on there. Um, to Jonathan's point, I'm not a robot. I've definitely failed workouts. We all have (laughs) just, just make sure you, you realize that. But my goal is just to inspire people. I remember Justin Williams saying with, you know, black kids in cycling, like he wants people to see people like them in cycling and definitely to a different degree and and a different lane. But I want people with full-time jobs to, to shoot a little higher, you know, like, I can't do it because I don't have a full-time job. I can't do it because I can't do 20-hour weeks. It's like I want to kind of break down those barriers on on what's getting in people's way and encourage people to like carve out the time. Like I'm gonna wake up at six. I'm gonna get on the trainer at 6:30, 6:30, 7:30. That's my time. I've I've cut it out. That's when I'm gonna train. I don't wanna. I'm gonna be in shape for this. So it's like just trying to trying to get people to realize like there can be a lot going on. Like currently, I'm trying to renovate a house and get married and hold down a job and I mean, it's it's just a matter of figuring out the time and the motivation to get it done.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Alex. It's a great note to end on. Thanks, everybody. And we will talk to you all next week. Check out the forum post for this one. Check out all the comments down below. And we'll talk to you
1: soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.